Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is uh, Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. And um, in this, we're, in this, we're continuing Jesus's discussion of the Trinity. We've we followed that, and especially, for instance, liturgically in the daily mass readings, um, the emphasis has been on the trinitarian nature of God. And we saw certainly on the feast of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost that uh, from the Gospel of John twenty that the Holy Spirit basically is the breath, the life force of Jesus. And Jesus, of course, is is whoever, wherever the Father is, there is Jesus, the Father, and he are one. So this Trinitarian dimension. And I think sometimes, um, and, and I know that um, one of the famous uh, challenges to this was was uh, an archbishop at one time who publicly said, not the Archbishop of Cincinnati, or but the, an archbishop from years past has said, "I don't know why we have to uh, why we have to bother um, with the Trinity. Why can't we just believe in Jesus?" Um, I'm sure it was well intentioned, but it was it's a disastrous thing as well because it's very very hard to believe in the divinity of Jesus without believing in the Trinity, and the reason is is because the Trinity is real. It is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Jesus is the incarnation of the Son, of the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And his divinity hangs on the fact that he is part of the Trinitarian God, not that he is God in disguise somehow. You know, the Hindus do that with Vishnu. Vishnu is a God who comes down and then goes into disguise um, among the people. Um, but he never really becomes one of them. And that's what's unique in this whole God-man story from the various world religions, is that Jesus is himself incarnate, that it is God in humanity, not God in a costume, not God in disguise. And, uh, and that means something, because when he enters into human flesh, when he enters into the world um, and joins himself to our humanity— um, it is an addition to humanity. It changes humanity. He's not just a moral teacher. He's not just a good example. He's not just a role model, as many tended to turn him into back in, in, in the 60s. And, you know, where you, you see pictures of, um, of Jesus and of Mahatma Gandhi and of uh, Nelson Mandela and so forth. And, you know, they're all, they're all revolutionary leaders and they're all, you know, good men, and so forth. Um, that's, that's so cheap. That's so shallow. Um, because Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela, whatever their virtues might have been, they were not God. And Jesus is. And so now he's gathering his disciples together and uh, <clears throat> in the gospel. And this whole Trinitarian dimension of the Lord um, becomes manifest. And we've seen before that the Trinity is one God with three distinct persons. And there's all sorts of philosophical ways to go about distinguishing who persons are um, because we we take the thing pe- persons and we turn it into people. And there's not three people in one God. There's three persons in one God. 
and uh, the the person is the distinctive, unique um, characteristic of an entity. And uh, that means that there are three distinct entities within the Trinity, but not people, only persons. And so that Jesus, as the second person of the Blessed Trinity, is dependent on the Father and dependent on the Spirit, as the Spirit is dependent on all of those which we see in the Gospel today. So remember that a belief in the Trinity is, is essential to the Christian faith. And it's essential to the Christian faith because, first of all, it's true. Secondly, it guarantees that Jesus is divine and that the Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate Jesus, is God and who has united himself to human flesh, enhancing humanity and drawing humanity, therefore, ever closer to the living God, which is that for which it was created and that which is its ultimate destiny, despite the obstacles, despite the stumbling blocks, despite the difficulties that sin has brought into our world, into our milieu. So Jesus now is getting ready to depart from the disciples, we know that, and he says to them, I still have many things to say to you, but they would be too much for you now. In other words, to reveal the deepest mysteries of the triune God, of redemption and of salvation and of eternal life and so forth, is more than the apostles in this new journey that they are on would be able to comprehend. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will lead you to the complete truth, since he will not be speaking as from himself, but he will say only what he has learned, and he will tell you of the things to come. So the Holy Spirit now, and we just, again, you know, just read the gospel of the Holy Spirit, the breath of Christ, the inner life of Jesus, and the inner life of the Father coming now into us. And what he says is this whole, this whole story of creation, redemption, eternity, and so forth is, is, is too much for, for you to, to understand because I have not even yet died and, and, and I have not even um, um, risen to the Father and I have not come from the grave, from the tomb. But, but he, he says, so they can't get this because the things that are going to enable them to understand have not yet happened. And so he said, but when the spirit of truth comes, and this spirit of truth, the word is paraclete, and uh, it's, it's a word um, from, derived from Jesus' own Aramaic speech, or his Hebrew speech. And it usually means a defense counsel. And categoros is another word which means a prosecutor. But in the Mosaic law, the two are one, and they are called witness. And the witness is both the defender and the prosecutor of the accused. And if the witness is a false witness, and if it is discovered, then they are to undergo the same punishment that they were trying to impose on someone else who was innocent. We see this certainly from the story of Susanna in the book of Daniel, the two wicked old men who had to go undergo the same kind of, of execution that they had planned for Susanna, for uh, for not succumbing to their desires and for exposing them for who they were and what they were. So the witness then is the one. And uh, the witness then, the, ch the opportunity, the, the purpose of the witness is to expose the truth. 
And so it's it's like it's the same way in uh, when we speak about the priest as judge in the confessional. It's, it's not that he's there to pass sentence. He's there to bring the truth out of the situation. So judge, paraclete, witness become the same when we look at it from this biblical perspective. And he said, then he will lead you, this spirit of truth, this witness of truth, um, he will lead you to the complete truth. In other words, all of those things which you were not yet able to comprehend because some of the things that they include had not yet happened, and uh, when they do happen, they can tend to be, for the disciples, sometimes more bewildering than clarifying. And so, basically, he says, the spirit that I give you, and he is to say, and he is to do this in the 20th chapter of John, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, and so forth. So the Pentecost comes from within Christ and from within the triune God. And he goes on to say, but he will say only what he has learned. Well, he is not speaking for himself, but only what he has learned. No person of the Trinity speaks independently of the other two persons of the Trinity. Jesus says this about himself. I say nothing except what the Father has told me to say. I do nothing except what the Father tells me to do, for the Father and I are one. And now he is drawing into that oneness of the Father and himself, now the Spirit as well, so that the Spirit becomes now the one who also is to explain to us and lead us to a complete truth where we will come to understand more deeply the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the creation of the world, the redemption of humanity, the eternal life, and the triune God. But he will say only what he learned. So he will be speaking of what the Father and the Son have to say. And he will tell you of the things to come. In other words, this whole idea that there is an end time, the whole idea that all things are oriented toward the, toward the end, all of that the Spirit will reveal to us in the Spirit which he gives to the disciples, the Spirit which is the Spirit which guides the church, which is the Holy Spirit, the, the faithful witness to the Father and the Son. He will glorify me since all he tells you will be taken from what is mine. In other words, is Jesus, everything Jesus does or says is from the Father, everything the Spirit does is from Jesus. It's how Jesus remains active, though ascended, he remains active in the church and remains active in people's lives, in the life of faith, um, through his own inner life, through his breath, which is the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is, in a way, the continuing presence of the Lord in the church. The Lord will manifest himself more concretely in the church um, through the sacraments, and, uh, but the guiding spirit of those sacraments and the guiding spirit of the church in which he, to which he is, which is his mystical body, that spirit, that the spirit becomes, we might even say, it is the soul of the church. And that without the Holy Spirit, the church would simply base, be based on the knowledge and the judgment of men. And we know how fallible that is. We know how unreliable that is. And so Jesus says, what you hear from the Spirit is reliable. What you hear from the Spirit is true. And this is where the church gets its authority to teach 
to teach authoritatively and the Pope to define authoritatively and infallibly. Um, those deeper truths of the reality of God and his relationship to the world, which we cannot arrive at on our own, but can only arrive at through the movement and the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the inner life of the Lord and the Father and speaks, um, of, and speaks what they speak and says what they speak. Because then Jesus goes on to say, everything the Father has is mine. And that is why I said, and he tells you, all he tells you will be taken from what is mine. And so once again, going back to this idea of this re-knitting of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together, Jesus says, everything the Father has is mine. Because Jesus is the perfect exemplar of the Father. Jesus has come forth, has been emanated from the Father, generated from the Father. Um, and, and therefore he is... He is the image of the Father, the image in the sense that the Father exists in him and he in the Father. Yet they are distinct in order that that is a relational um, bond between them. And it's not just a different face of the same person. It is a separate person, not a separate people, but a separate person. And that separate person reflects perfectly the Father, for the Father can only create that which is perfect. The Father can only emanate that, generate that which is perfect, because the Father himself is perfect and is source. And then Jesus has already said that, uh, that what, what the Holy Spirit is going to say is what he says, which means it's what the Father said. This idea of the Trinitarian relationship and the Trinitarian truth of the proclamation of the gospel and the proclamation of the magisterium of the church, that no matter how people want to distort it or tinker with it or do whatever they want, eventually that which is non-essential kind of falls away. We have all sorts of very solemn pronouncements in the church throughout the ages, most of which no one has ever heard of again and most of which do not survive the age in which they, they become problematic. And so it is with our age, those things which are contrary to the truth, those things which are contrary to the spirit, and I'm sure there probably are some things that are that way, they will simply fade away. They simply will not be part of that legacy, that heritage which goes on from generation to generation. And because uh, the spirit will will um, wield the winnowing fan and it will take away the, the, the it'll separate the trash from that which is worthwhile, from that which is necessary, from that which is tr the truth of God. And so he says, everything the Father has is mine, and that is why I said, he, all he tells you will be taken from what is mine. Which means if everything the Father has is Jesus's, everything the Spirit has is also the Father's, and also Jesus's. And so what we do then is we have a God who is essentially um, relational, and uh, and we are created in his image and likeness. And so we too are relational beings. Um, we are created as relational beings. And uh, because we are in the image and the likeness of God. And this is the, this is the peak of our existence, is to have be, first of all, and primarily, of course, in relationship with Jesus Christ, in relationship with the person of Christ, which is almost impossible for us if we cannot experience that in our own human realm of existence. If we cannot know love or give love in our human existence, then 
it is um, the way we we probably have a very hard time believing in Jesus Christ and having a relationship with Jesus Christ. We know that our familiar relationships um, impact how we relate to the Father, how we relate to uh, our, our mother in the church, Mary, how we relate to the Son, and so forth. So that's why each person really has a unique and a distinctive relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, because their human experience is, is different. They might fall into general categories of an experience and behavior, but they are never the same, because the personalities involved are never exactly the same. And so you can say, from a psychological point of view, this person has these characteristics, um, that doesn't mean that they are exactly experienced the way the characteristics are experienced in other people who will live under the same circumstances, for each person is different. You can have a person who is very deprived in, in their childhood and rise to great heights of, of achievement and so forth in their lives. You can, you can also have people who have great childhoods and who achieve nothing in their lives, and especially, especially the idea of an enduring and a lasting relationship that bears fruit. All we have to do is, is watch uh, the, the cycle of divorce and the Hollywood circle and kind of the insanity of it all, that uh, they go from infatuation to infatuation to infatuation. And, uh, and set a very bad example for, for the rest of the country, for the rest of our society. But, <clears throat> and they are not the only ones, of course. Nevertheless, what Jesus is promising us in this gospel is that we can believe what the Spirit has to say. And I think here we go back again to something we've already talked about, this idea of a tendency, a historical tendency, to so divide, to see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as people instead of persons. And that in so doing, then, we're able to attribute very discreet things to the Father, very discreet things to the Son, very discreet things to the Spirit, when in fact they can't be that way. They are all present in each manifestation of God's relationship with the world. And for instance, we've mentioned this before, even in the Gospel of John, Jesus attributes to himself the voice in the burning bush um, that, that, uh, that Moses encountered. And, uh, and we know, for instance, that Moses was some 1,500 years before Christ. And, uh, and yet, Jesus says, that was me, I am. And uh, meaning not in the incarnate form, but as the second person of the Blessed Trinity, as the Word, as the Logos, he speaks to Moses. He leads Israel um, in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. The Holy Spirit, it says, has spoken through the prophets. In other words, what the prophets were speaking was inspired by the Holy Spirit, who was as yet unknown, because the triune God was as yet unknown. It's one of those things, I still have many things to say to you, but they would be too much for you right now. Israel could have not have, have dealt with the Trinity because they lived in a very polytheistic world. There is a theory, William Albright in his book says, there is a theory that the Hebrews were what he called henotheists in the very earlier days. They believed in many gods, but they believed that their God was the most powerful. And that was why in the Old Testament, whenever tragedy or hardship befell Israel, they lived in fear 
that their God was no longer more powerful than the gods that afflicted them. Eventually, that that evolved into a into a, uh, a monotheism, into into the one God. But in the very earliest days of the small tribe wandering, they were, at least according to William Foxwell Albright, they believed in the existence of many gods, and which is why they offered sacrifice to theirs to encourage him to stay strong and to encourage him to be their protector and to overcome the evil influences of the other gods. In a way, we can see in this also the harshness of the prophet Ezekiel when he contends with the 400 prophets of Baal that uh, if, in fact, they were, they, were, uh, they were successful in their challenge to Ezekiel or his challenge to them, then that would have meant that their God was at least as powerful, if not more powerful, than the God of Ezekiel. And in so doing, then, the God of Ezekiel would not be one worth believing in or not one worth following, that the reasonable person would then begin to follow the ball, because the ball had overcome um, Yahweh of the Old Testament. So we see then back in the background, deep behind all of this, when Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but they would be too much for you now. He has already, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have already, through the Spirit, the voice of the prophets, through the Son, the voice in the burning bush, through the Father, the created order, through the Son, and in the Spirit, and so forth. All of this had already been accomplished, and the the uh, the groundwork was being laid. There are many people who tend to say, "Well, you know, the uh, the Old Testament. What what is that to us?" Um, and certainly, this was true in the time of the Gnostics in the second century, but it was also true of the reformers. Um, Zwingli, the reformer of Zurich, um, was was very adamant, and he he called the Catholics Judaizers, and and because they they took so much from the Old Testament. Well, the Old Testament was the, was the revelation of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It was a developmental revelation in which humanity is slowly brought into the more, the greater the fullness of truth. And um, so, yes, so the Spirit then has to supplement what the Son and the Father were unable to do with us because of the way we were created, we were not able to comprehend those things which had not yet transpired or those things which had already transpired, which we had no, no e- equipment um, to, to understand. They would simply be to us if they said, well, the spirit I'm giving you is the spirit that spoke through the prophets. Well, eventually we're going to say that and know that and understand that. But we're not going to know it or say it um, if we don't even know there is a Holy Spirit. And if we don't even know that, uh, that there is a triune God, then he can tell them all he wants and it will mean, it will mean nothing to them. And that becomes problematic. And then, and again, this witness. Now, now, when in John 20, he gives this Holy Spirit, this witness to the disciples, to the church, and gives them the mission, their mission is to witness to the Father, to witness to the Son, and to do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. That witness has to be true. And so what happens is, is that the witness, the spirit that is given to the church, the paraclete who is given to the church, is going to keep the church from error. Now this is difficult because we know the church has erred in the past um, in many ways, in many ways, but never in the truth about God. 
that somehow or other that always comes around. Um, when, in fact, um, Pope John XXII did, in fact, um, change doctrine, um, he recanted of that, he repented of that, um, because he, he was led by the Spirit to bring forth the true witness, which he had in his sinfulness not done. And I think that this is how we, we view, for instance, one of the things that non-Catholics uh, uh, accuse us of is, you know, is thinking the Pope is impalpable when he gets up in the morning and says, well, you know, the sun is shining and it isn't. So therefore he's wrong. Um, that's not it at all. It has to do with the identity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It has to do with the identity of God. For without God, there can be nothing. And so we witness to his existence in the lives that we live. And we know that that witness is essential for evangelization because we know, and I repeat again after many times, the letter of Francis Xavier to Ignatius of Loyola when he was in the missions in Goa in India and wrote back to Ignatius and said, the, witness, the Christians' lives are so scandalous that nothing I say has any credibility to the, to the natives. That if we do not witness, then we destroy faith. And, uh, and that's why Jesus says, when the Spirit of Truth comes, he will lead you to the complete truth, since he will not be speaking as from himself, but will say only what he has learned. For us, then, let us reflect upon this, understand the importance of the Trinity in our life. It explains us to ourselves as relational beings. It tells us somehow or other that we are incomplete, alone, um, that we need to be in relationship to be whole, because we're made in the image and the likeness of God, and God is whole in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It teaches us also that the obligation we have is not just to speak of Christ to those who do not know him, but to live in such a way that he becomes credible to them in the midst of the world. And this is our witness. This is where we become, in a sense, the servants of the paraclete, um, who go forth and give witness to Jesus Christ in the life that they live, in the way that they live those lives. We're called to that. That's our mission. That's our vocation as Christians. And that's what leads us ultimately to our destiny of eternal life. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.